Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton. To get notices of our new Bible examination programs, go to our website, whtt.org, and enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right-hand side of the website. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're continuing on in the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 10. We'll be starting at verse 11. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Glenn, please. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we are here gathered here tonight, and we just want to... uh, collectively learn your word from a, the the truth standpoint we want to always when studying the word we want to be dealing with the truth but uh, sometimes the truth is not really the truth and uh so we really want to get directly to the truth uh let be with mark uh fill your spirit as he teaches us and uh fill him with your spirit of truth uh and just guide his words uh uh, put an enlightenment in his mind as he's reading and talking. And, and uh, God, thank you for all the ways you've worked through this study, just really uh, showing us that Jesus is the true replacement for everything. He's the true fulfillment of the entire Old Testament, and the New Testament is his story, Father. Thank you for this time. Thank you for everyone. Please be with each person as they think about what to say and enlighten them as with good and and, uh, enlightening comments. Thank you, Lord Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. 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 Thank you so much, Glenn. And welcome, Mark, for our 19th lesson here in Hebrews. It's been really interesting. It's good to be back with everyone again, and thank you for that greeting. We have been looking at this letter to the Hebrews, which was written by a Judean Christian, and the term Judean denotes nationality more than anything else. That's lost on most uh, modern English-speaking Christians today. They use the word Jewish, and it denotes religion, but it then and really today denotes nationality more than religion. Even a cursory study of the religious views of Israelis would confirm that. But in the first century, most of the Judean nation had long been scattered out of Palestine proper, Ever since the Babylonian captivity, they were scattered throughout the world, throughout the Roman Empire, and even beyond to the east. And these people who had been gone from Palestine for hundreds of years spoke Greek, as did most of the Roman world, as their first language. Some of them learned Aramaic, which was the language of the Judeans that they picked up in Babylon during their long captivity there. But it was a second language to most of them. And our writer is writing in Greek 
he is quoting the Old Testament from Greek, and he is writing to a Greek-speaking audience of Judeans who also use the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint. And he is encouraging them as events seem to be moving uh, a little more rapidly towards a distinct persecution of those Judeans who believe and proclaim uh, Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah, many of this audience are going to have to decide whether to just sit back and do nothing or whether they continue to proclaim Yahshua as Messiah in their synagogue community or bring down on their heads uh, intense persecution. And our writer has been comparing the spiritual things of Christ to the physical things of the old age, of the old law, of the old covenant, of the old priesthood. In chapters 9 and 10 in particular, he has used the Day of Atonement, the most significant single day on the Judean-Israelite calendar, and the ceremonies of that day that involved the high priest to continue his comparison between placing one's hope in the Messiah who has finally come and in rejecting that and returning their hope to the old things of Moses and the Judean nation in Palestine. All right, so let's pick up the reading here in chapter 10, read verses 11 through 18, please. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he's made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, the sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. All right, thank you very much. So the priest that he's referring to is the priest of the old order, of the old age of the law of Moses, who has to serve day by day. And, of course, it wasn't the same priest. They had courses. They had so many priests by the first century that they had to take turns and cast lots to even be allowed to serve in the temple. But a priest or priests ministered every day to fulfill the law of Moses' requirements within the temple compound in Jerusalem. And these sacrifice, animal sacrifices, of course, were offered over and over again. Just on an ordinary day, you had one sheep in the morning and one in the evening. And then on the on Shabbat, they offered seven. And then on the holier days and holidays, uh, even more, up to hundreds of thousands on the great feast days. But these can never remove sins. They never did. They weren't as this letter was being written, and they certainly won't be able to in the future. It's not really open for discussion, and we did have a really in-depth discussion on this last week involving the, the idea of supersessionism 
and we may have given it a little hard rap, it's not the best description to say that the new age has replaced the old age. It's better to say that the new age has completely fulfilled the old age. But the concept that the old age has no validity after the new age comes into play is biblically accurate. And those scholars like Strugnell, as we mentioned, who were fired from the Dead Sea Scrolls project just for alluding to that idea, have been done a great injustice for just repeating a basic principle found in the Bible. God was incredibly long-suffering toward the Judean nation, and he gave them an entire generation to repent because they had pretty much rejected Messiah en masse. I mean, we were down to about 120 believers at the time of the crucifixion, and shortly thereafter until the day of Pentecost. And Pentecost is when large numbers of Judeans began repenting of their participation in the wholesale rejection of God's Messiah. And the book of Acts details this out. God sent 12 apostles to the Judean nation and only one to everyone else in the world because the gospel had to go to the Judean first and then to the other nations. And I encourage any of our listeners, if they want to study that in more detail, to go back through our recordings looking at the book of Acts because that is the story all through the book of Acts. But once the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70 and the sacrifices ceased, there was no mechanism at all for sins to be covered until the blood of Jesus could do away with them once and for all. Only the blood of Jesus can remove sins. Those animal sacrifices were like a holding card looking forward to when Messiah came to do away with those once and for all. And he quotes here uh, from the uh, Old Testament, of course, I will no longer remember their sins and iniquities. This is from Jeremiah 31, one of the greatest prophecies of the new age and the new covenant. The sins and iniquities will not be remembered. They were remembered under the old law, just kind of rolling forward every year until Messiah came. Once Messiah came, those who accepted him had their sins forgiven, and there was never any more need for a sin offering, according to our writer here. So, again, our poor dispensational friends who are trying to uh, contribute money to renew the animal sacrifices, or who think that that what passes for uh, Judaism in Israel today, or even in America, are equally valid for those people as the gospel is for everyone else. I mean, that just simply cannot be reconciled with this letter to the Hebrews or many other passages in the Scripture, in my estimation. In verse 12, he's contrasting this new high priest, Jesus or Yeshua, the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, 
He offered one sacrifice for sins, one which was effective forevermore, and then took his seat at God's right hand. And this would be, again, alluding to the passage of the high priest of Israel through the holy place into the holy of holies where God's throne was represented. And he was in there for a while, and the congregation of Israel was assembled outside waiting for him to return. They had a concern every year lest he be struck dead as he entered into the throne presence of God. If he did so in an unworthy manner, he might be struck dead. There were bells on his helm, and there was a rope tied around his ankle, we're told. So that if he was struck dead, you know, they could hear that there was no movement and they could retrieve his corpse by pulling on the rope. But Jesus, in contrast to that, entered boldly into the throne room of God and sat down at God's right hand, waiting for his enemies to be placed as a footstool for his feet. And, of course, most People today just assume that this is um, Christ's enemies at the end of time, uh, at the time in which the universe is going to be physically consumed. But that's really, uh, I mean, that is 1,500 years of our tradition, but it really doesn't fit into the Bible story at all. Because who was the enemy of Christ. I mean, in most of the Bible story. <laughs> in the, if you went through the entire Bible and listed who opposed God the most, and you tallied that up, by the end of the Bible, who would win that tally? Israelites. Exactly. Israelites would win the tally. And certainly, the Gospel of John shows this very clearly and the book of Acts, again, which we have uh, detailed studies on both of those books, they both progress to show that the Judean leadership in the first century became the enemy of God. Not because they were immoral civil leaders. Uh, you know, you could think of all these reasons why the guy in North Korea or or somebody in communist China would be considered the enemy of God, and, you know, it would have validity. But the Judean leadership in the Gospels and in the book of Acts opposed God's eternal plan of salvation. And that was essential for God to create his new temple, his new dwelling place. The people had to be cleansed of their sins, as this paragraph is describing, in order for those people to become sanctified, to become building blocks of the new spiritual Jerusalem. Their hearts had to be cleansed by the blood of Christ so that the Father and the Son could indwell the hearts of the believers. And the Judean leadership trumped the present-day communists or Adolf Hitler or Mussolini or Joseph Stalin, who were 
evil, evil men, but the Judean leadership of the first century were so evil that their long-awaited Messiah, they rejected and they murdered. And they put him to death and they tried to thwart God's eternal plan to redeem a people for his own possession so that he could indwell them on earth. This is the theme of the whole Bible from Genesis for the Garden of Eden and even the days of creation, Genesis 1, all the way to the final chapter in Revelation. The great enemy of God's eternal purpose were the Judean leaders of the first century. So I believe personally that these are the enemies that are to be placed as a footstool for his feet. You, you can also look at Revelation 1.7 where it says, Lo, those who pierced him will see him coming in the clouds. I am coming soon, he says seven times in Revelation, and those who killed me will see me coming in the clouds of glory. I don't think any of those Pharisees or Sadducees are still alive in Palestine over there personally. So in the, in the context of Bi the Bible's major theme, these enemies to be placed as a footstool for his feet are the Judean leadership and any of those in Rome, such as Nero, who helped them to achieve their goal of warring against the elect of God. Verse 14 sums up this plan. By one offering he has brought those who are sanctified to perfection forevermore. And a lot of American Christians have really simplified the gospel. It's not necessarily a false statement, but it says, well, God's eternal purpose was to come and save me so that I could go to heaven when I die. I mean, I'm not saying that's a false statement, but I'm saying that misses a big part of the point. This verse says, these that are perfected are sanctified. And that is the idea of being set apart for a special purpose. We weren't just saved because God thought it was a good idea. We were saved to fulfill God's eternal purpose to create the people for his own possession, children of Abraham by faith, who would allow Christ in their hearts to cleanse them so that they could become a building block in the new temple, the real temple that God wanted from the beginning, could not be built until Christ completed, verse 14, by making the one offering to perfect us forevermore. We don't have to keep going back over and over again, like the ancient Israelites did. We have been saved to serve. We have been saved to serve a purpose, to be a living stone in God's spiritual house, to be princes in the household of God. There's a lot of different images that are used, but the main two in the Bible are the, the temple and the bride, but also the idea of family, sons were adopted as sons, and so on. These are all symbolic of God's eternal purpose to give us the eternal life of Christ 
to make us a suitable bride for his son. This is powerful stuff here. So then he quotes Jeremiah 31, one of the greatest passages about this new covenant, talking about in days to come, the last days of Israel, the last days of all the prophets were the days in which Christ would come and the days in which the apostles would carry out the Great Commission and the disciples would endure the Great Tribulation. And then he sums it up again in verse 18. Now where these are forgiven, there is no offering for sin any longer. All right. Uh, Mark, can I jump in on verse 14? I've got uh, my my strong concordance as we're going through this. And what I find interesting in a lot of these scriptures, there's a lot of words that aren't in the, the Greek text that are just kind of added to make sense out of the passage. And what I'm seeing in verse 14 is that it's the contrast of a single offering with the multiple offerings that the, the Levites had to do year after year after year after year. And when I'm just pulling the words out of 14 in the Greek, it makes to me it makes it clear that we're contrasting the single offering, Christ's offering, and that it says the words which translated uh, perfected is, has more the idea of completed. And then it, in the, when it says for all time, that's like a point. It says the Greek word there is like just talking to a point. And then for those who are being sanctified, uh, being made holy and set apart. So my spin on verse 14 is that Jesus' single offering at that point has now allowed us to be sanctified. And it's from then on forward. We don't need the, the blood of bulls and goats and multiple sacrifices. So it's, the idea of being perfected for all time has more of a Calvinistic idea to me that it's like, okay, it's a one-time deal, and we're perfected forever, and it's, that's, that's the way it goes. I don't see that pulling it out of the Greek. Even the literal translations use the word perfected, but uh, Strong's does say to accomplish, to complete, or to consummate. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, again, we're, the idea of fulfilling all yes. the promises, you know, fulfilling the old law is fulfilled completely in Christ. I came not to do away with the law. I came to fulfill the law. So, yeah, I agree. Those are good thoughts. It's very difficult to undo hundreds of years of tradition. Even once you start to, you find yourself decades later, you know, repeating things that have been ingrained into you since you were a child. And the legalistic nature of some of the Reformed Western gospel is very much ingrained in a lot of our terminology and a lot of these translations. It's going to take some effort to uh, root it out. A couple of seminaries need to teach it, too. Yes. Yeah. Or rethink the gospel, (laughs) the way they taught it in seminaries. Well, yeah, seminaries are a real mixed bag. You know, they didn't have any seminaries in the first century or the second century or the third century until after Constantine. And a seminary can be a good tool, but it can also ensure that a false idea is spread rapidly through large area. All right. Well, let's... uh, at least read the next paragraph, verses 19 through 25, if we could. 
Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how he may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. All right. Well, thank you. He addresses his audience as brothers, and they were doubly brothers. They were brothers in Christ, and they were also brothers in the Judean nation in their shared lineage and heritage coming down from Jacob. We see in the book of Acts examples of both uses of brother being used that way. But he's continuing on the thoughts of the other paragraph. This once-for-all cleansing, in contrast to the repeated sacrifice of the old, have given the believers access into the holy place by Jesus' blood. Only the select few, the priests, could go into the old covenant temple. But all believers now can enter in because of the cleansing power of Jesus' blood, which is, that's what I was trying to say a while ago. This was God's eternal purpose, to cleanse us so that we could come into God's presence and that God could indwell us. A new and living way, this is the path. Maybe this is the straight gate that we talk about. But this way has been dedicated for us through the veil or curtain, which is his flesh. So the veils that stood between the courtyard and the holy place and between the holy place and the holy of holies represented the fleshly body of Jesus. And, of course, when his physical body was rent, then one of those curtains was also rent at the same time to drive in this relationship that God had intended for there to be. And we have a great high priest over God's house, God's spiritual house. Christ was not eligible to be high priest over the physical temple in Jerusalem, being of the tribe of Judah. So we know this is talking about a new house, which was represented by the tabernacle of David, which we find back in the Old Testament in Second uh, Samuel, where David set up the throne of God, the Ark of the Covenant, in plain view with an open awning, and peoples of every nation could walk right up to it and see God's throne. That was a great picture of what God ultimately intended to do. And we have this idea, again, that our conscience is finally cleansed by the blood of Christ, repeated here in verse 22. Since our conscience can be made clean by the blood of Christ, and our bodies uh, washed with pure water, probably an allusion to the uh, immersion of baptism that was practiced then, 
we have all of these things, all of the promises made through the centuries to Israel have been fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, we should maintain without wavering the confession of our hope. So, again, there's the crux of the book right there in verse 23. If they place their hope in the old order, they will be swept away along with the old order shortly, within a few years. They need to place their hope in Christ, whose promises are trustworthy and whose gifts are everlasting. I think we'll break it this time. We've got a whole other concept introduced here in verses 24 and 25. And again, this is often wrested uh, out of context by modern-day teachers. And so uh, I think we'll break here. All right. Well, thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.